Welcome to Story Shaped, the podcast about the stories that shape us and have the power to change the world. I'm Susan Cahill, debut children's author, and my co-host is the seasoned and wonderful children's author Sinead O'Hart. Together, we'll be taking you through some deep dives into the books that shaped us and interviewing other writers about their favourite and most influential stories. We hope you'll enjoy Story Shaped. to you, fair listener, and good day to you, Dr. Susan Cahill, my co-host on Story Shaped Podcast. Here we are again for your listening pleasure. <laughs> How are you doing, Susan? I'm good. Good day to you, Dr. Sinead O'Hart. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm good. It's hot. It's still very hot in London. It still yes. hasn't rained and I have a teething toddler, so I'm great. It's all <laughs> How are you? It's all good. Yes, we're, we haven't got the heights of temperature that you're having in London here in the Midlands of Ireland but it's pretty pretty hot and we haven't had rain for a long time as well but I believe rain is forecast next week so we're all really looking forward to that um I don't have a teething toddler anymore but I remember uh the summer I did have a teething toddler (laughs) we also had a sort of a drought or serious serious heat so I completely utterly sympathize with you and in your predicament and it's amazing that we're both here we're both looking fresh-faced and we're both looking ready to talk about what are we talking about this week? We're talking it? about Marianne Dreams by Catherine Store. We are talking about Marianne Dreams by Catherine Store, and I am so happy and excited about this book. Um, uh, this is a great. This is a book that I read obsessively when I was a little girl. It's one that I'd never owned when I was a child. Uh, it was one that I used to get out of the library. As far as I remember, so often that the librarian used to just keep it under her desk for me because I used to just come in and like <laughs> ask for it. Um, and but I as I grew up I forgot about it Um, I forgot I rather I forgot I forgot the author's name and I forgot the title Um, and in adulthood I I often used to be sort of visited by memories or, or dreams no pun intended of a book that I remembered reading uh, that had uh, had a drawing of a house in it it had a scribbled out window in the top corner it had menacing horrifying standing stones around the house it had you know it was just so and so, such an air of creepiness and 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 horror, I suppose, to my child's mind, but I couldn't remember who the author was or what the book was called. And but you remember about, the horror. But I remember the horror, and I remember how much I really, really had been obsessed with it when I was a kid. So, um, about eight years ago, I put out a call on Twitter for people to help me find this book, and somebody very clever told me it was called Marianne Dreams by Catherine Store, and I was so happy to be finally reconnected with the book. And I went and ordered a copy from my favorite bookshop. And it arrived in my house a few days later and I was so happy that I hugged it to myself and then went and read it immediately because I was so glad to be re- reunited with my, my childhood, my childhood fave. Um, but it's 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 probably one of the most unusual books I've ever read. Would you say so, Susan? Yeah, well? it's um, yeah, because I, I read this as a child as well. I remember taking it out of Clonakilty Library like I took out the same place I took out Charmed Life from it was one of those books but I don't have as visceral a memory of it as you do I think all I remembered was that it was terrifying mm-hmm. um and I like I spent years uh, several years ago I 
that I probably still do it actually is like anytime I was in a secondhand bookshop I would like just go through the children's section and um look for books that I'd read as a child like that I'd taken out of libraries as a child and so at some point in the last several years I bought the puffin edition of Marianne Dreams for one pound wow um, bargain yeah <laughs> uh, <laughs> And but I hadn't actually reread it until this podcast, and it's a it's a strange book, and it's a book in which things are happening at a different level to this like the story level. Yeah. Um, but maybe you want to um, maybe you want to summarize the plot for us, Sinead. Sure, yeah, I can do that because it's actually for a book that, as we were discussing before we started recording, for a book that we have so much to say about and for a book that has so many depths to it, it's actually the plot is not that complicated, really. Mm. Um, the author, um, Catherine Storer, was, as far as we can work out, she she trained as a doctor um, and she worked as as a psychiatrist or as a psychological psych- psychotherapist, basically. Um, she trained in, in Jungian theory, which is all about, you know, dreams and symbols and your unconscious mind using symbols to communicate uh, your 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 deepest needs to you or whatever which is all relevant very relevant to this book because that's really it, it really informs a reading of, of of Marianne Dreams um she passed away over 20 years ago now in 2001 um she was born in 1913 um and she had a long career in children's books um she had wrote over 30 books as far as I believe but this is the only one of hers that I have I have actually read yeah me too um, yeah. I actually can I just jump in there for a second because sure. she wrote I think she wrote this book in her 40s and yeah. I really like to celebrate writers women in their 40s books. women in their 40s writing books and women for no parents in their 40s writing women books. in their parents <laughs> writing books for no personal reasons whatsoever because <laughs> we're only in our 20s of course Susan. Uh, yeah yeah, we're, yeah. We're not <laughs> we did our PhDs in our nappies yeah, type thing um, yeah. <laughs> um but yeah, no, she 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 was a very and for her time, I think she was a very accomplished. I mean, to train as a doctor, and and then to go on to have a whole different career in children's fiction, and, and yeah, she worked yeah. as an editor, I think, as well as yeah, well as being an author. Puffin books, Penguin books. Puffin or Penguin, yeah. yeah. Um, and as as well as that, to, to be a parent to her three daughters is is quite quite a thing. So she she was a great lady. Um, but the the plot of Marianne Dreams is quite I well, it's, you know, on on the surface, it's quite simple. We have a little girl. Marianne who's who's celebrating her 10th birthday big deal she's turning into double figures and she's really excited and she has already planned and she has all these lovely presents coming to her um, including writing lessons which she has really wanted for a long time um, but on the day of her birthday as, as she can smell she knows her mother is cooking her her breakfast or her sorry her birthday dinner um, and she can smell it and she she knows as soon as she smells the beautiful chicken cooking that she won't be able to eat any of it and she feels really unusual and really weird and um it turns out that she has some sort of a disease which is never actually specified in the novel as to what it is but it leaves her bedbound uh, incapacitated for months it seems um, over an entire summer um so she she's she's very unwell and uh her frazzled mother i suppose the hint is there that the mother is running out of things to do to uh, to entertain this poor sick child she eventually gives her um a, Marianne's great grandmother's um, work box, I suppose, where she would have kept her needles and thread and that kind of thing. 
And in the workbox, Marianne comes across a pencil, a silver pencil that she says it's it's described like it has a personality almost from the start, yeah. <laughs> like it like it's like it's a character in its own right. You know, it's it looks friendly. It looks like it's willing to be used. It looks like it would make her drawings work the way she wants them to. So she picks up this pencil and begins to draw in her sketchbook. And like most kids, when you're beginning to draw, the first thing you draw, it's instinctive almost, isn't it, to, to draw a house? So that's what Marianne draws. A house with a chimney um, with smoke coming up straight from it. She draws a little fence around the house. She draws flowers in the garden. And for reasons she doesn't really understand herself, she draws stones, sort of standing stones or tall stones kind of scattered around the house. And um, when she goes to sleep, then she discovers that she wakes up in a world that looks a lot like the house she's drawn. It takes her a while to sort of realise this is where she is. Um, and she realises she goes up to the door and she knows she has to get in, but she can't because she didn't draw a knocker. Uh, or or a doorbell or any any way to could sort of alert the people inside the house that she's here, so she knocks on the door but there's no answer um, and her her knuckles get sore, and she hears a voice like whispering in the breeze telling her put somebody in the house. So when she wakes up then she she sort of goes okay that was weird, but she does use the pencil to put um, a face a face in the top window doesn't it like and she draws a draws a boy because he's easier to draw than a girl because he has short hair <laughs> I thought that was yeah. I love I love her sort of her logic of why she draws the things she draws um, so she puts she puts a boy in the top window upstairs um, she puts a knocker on the door um, and then she goes back in her dream then the next night to the house and she shouts up to this boy upstairs you know let me in he says I can't there's no stairs in the house and she says oh, right okay um, so after much discussion, then she she decides um, uh, she this boy and her don't get on from the, from the very beginning. They're they're very aggressive towards each other. That's what I I what I when I reread this book, I really noticed how depth of sort of aggression and rage they have for each other, kind of from from get go. Um, there's really, a lot. There's of a lot feelings of, in this yes, book. Absolutely. A lot of feelings. Yeah, yeah. And it's significant because, you know, you know, it's not there for no reason, you know, and I, I, yeah. I kind of as a kid, I kind of was like just I, di I didn't even register with me that they were annoyed with each other. And of course, on one level, you can understand it because um, as it turns out, the boy in the house is a boy called Mark um, who is suffering from polio, um, as was endemic, I guess, at the time, because uh, the book was written in 1958. And uh, sort of in that in that time or, or slightly prior to that, you know, in the late 40s as well, there was there was a polio epidemic across the world. Um, and so the reason we know he's Mark is because Marianne gets um, she gets a, a governess or a tutor called Miss Chesterfield, who I actually love. I think she's really well written and really rich, even though all she really is is a sort of a, a plot connector between the two children. Isn't <laughs> she? She doesn't really do anything else that I can that I can sort of think of. But she's really rich and she's really you, you learn a lot about her. She has great dialogue. And I have a really clear image of her in my head, actually, when I when I read her. Um, and Miss Chesterfield is very, very kind and she's tutoring Marianne and she's also tutoring a boy called Mark um, and several other kids who have been struck down with, you know, communi communicable illnesses in the area and whose parents want them to keep up their schooling until they can get back to school. So um, Marianne puts this boy in the house uh, before she actually knows about Mark in real life. Um, as far as I can work out from the book. And then when Miss Chesterfield tells her that she, she also has a pupil called Mark who has polio and who is recovering from it and blah, blah, blah. She tells her all these bits and pieces about Mark. Marianne is, she kind of leeches onto it straight away. She kind of invests immediately in, oh, I want to know more about Mark. And she's kind of asking about Mark all the time. Um, and Miss Chesterfield's like, look, Mark is irrelevant to us. We need to get on with our own work. Let's, keep, let's continue. So in her in her waking life, um, Marianne is basically in bed doing nothing. She's... Uh, hasn't the energy to even cross the room to get a book. Um, she's dealing with her her mother, who's sort of 
fussing around her as mothers would when their child's not well. She's dealing with um, his chest creel coming in and making her do all these hard, hard work sums and history and French and everything else. Because um, she's only 10. She's actually quite, she's done a lot of school work for, for a 10 year old. Um, and she's dealing with the fatigue and, and the, the upset of, of being unwell. But in her dream life, her and Mark are beginning to get to know each other. Uh, there's uh, an awful lot of, an awful lot, as I say, always there's this aggression, there's this um, anger at each other. Um, and uh, eventually Marianne starts giving him things that he needs, like she draws him a bed, she draws him some food, she draws him his bicycle, and eventually when when he wants something to do, um, and it helps him actually to to exercise his polio, his polio legs, I suppose, or his, you know, his weakened legs. Um, but in a fit of anger one day at Mark, um, uh, she scribbles over the window in the house that he normally he's normally in, pardon me. <clears throat> Um, and uh, then when she goes back, she's, the room is, is dark because the window's covered with iron bars, essentially, you know, there's no light getting in. And she's like, oh, God, I think I did this. And it begins to dawn on her that what she draws is actually, you know, actually the, the bit with the food and the bike came afterwards. So I'm getting mistaken now in my in my plot summary. She, it, it takes them a long time to kind of realise that the work that Marianne does on the picture is reflected in the dream world that she goes back to. Um, and then one, uh, she and, and another thing she does when she gets angry is she she puts um, eyes on the standing stones all around the house, and this is when the book really gets creepy. <laughs> and from about page ninety four in my edition, but um, chap mid midway through chapter eleven in the book, um, the stone it's when it's when the fear that the the horror aspect of this book really kind of begins to ramp up. And this is the bit that I really remembered. This is the bit that stuck in my head for for over thirty years and made me want to reread this book. But it's actually over halfway through the whole story. You know, I was saying to Susan earlier <clears throat> before we recorded that the 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 overriding impression of this book I have is is the, the fear, <laughs> the horror that she um, Catherine Sora manages to, manages to achieve with her depictions of the stones with the eyes. Um, but it's it's actually it's it's only the last half or the, even less than the last half of the book that those appear in the whole first first section of the book is totally it's just Marianne and Mark getting angry at each other all the time, um, her going back to the house, giving him things eventually when he, when he needs them. We learn more about the two of them and their 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 sicknesses. And we learn a few significant details, like where where Marianne can remember her living, her waking life. Mark can't remember his waking life. He just kind of is in the house and he he sort of doesn't know what happens to him between the times when Marianne comes to visit. And that's that's important. Um, but when this when the eyes come on the stones, we have this feeling of claustrophobia and and surveillance and the pressure on the children begins to sort of really grow um and they eventually decide they have to leave the house they have to get out because these stones are kind of creeping towards the house and they're watching them and they they the eyes are are moving and you, you get this description of them their eyeballs swiveling and you know the eyelids moistly closing and oh it's just it's body horror 101 it's really awful um and Marianne also, she she draws a, a lighthouse somewhere kind of in the distance um, behind the house. And um, one day when they're in the house together, they they see this strange light. And at first they think it's something that the stones are doing. The stones begin to be called them, all in block capitals, um, or the watchers also. So they think it's something that the watchers are, or that them are doing, um, this light. And it, it, eventually they realise it's the lighthouse that Marianne has drawn. And then they also realize that there's there's a voice in the light telling them to telling them to leave go you know you need, you need to leave the, the, there's danger where you are um and another really terrifying aspect for me as a, as a child reader was when Marianne draws a radio um in the other room it was there to sort of give mark something to do something to listen to but all it can really pick up is either static or these weird voices um uh, weird kind of weird weird thumpings and weird boomings and they, the children work out that what they're hearing is the thoughts of the stones outside 
they're hearing the thoughts of these the watchers possibly their heartbeats as well maybe and that when the light passes over the stones their eyes clamp shut and they they start sort of screeching and going not the light not the light and so the kids realize that the lighthouse is going to give them their opportunity to leave but like when when the stones are distracted by the light they can try and they can try and run but they're both weakened by their illnesses so it takes them a long time to you know to kind of they have to go with they could do it in stages and eventually they manage to escape but this, the escape is actually really tensely done it's really you know it's really really um heart in mouth sort of uh uh action and eventually they do make it to the lighthouse and they 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 wait there for rescue and the, the end is very um ambiguous i think we'll talk about about the end uh, later in the episode but so basically all that really happens in the book is that we have a little girl who draws a house and she visits it in her dreams she has a little boy in the house they get terrified by these uh, uh, surveillance monsters outside the house in the form of these rocks with eyes, and they and they escape. That's that's the basic plot. But there's there's so much uh, so much in this book um, in terms of imagery, in terms of symbolism, um, and it's it's just a it's just a fascinating thing. Um, but there was a quote that I came across in my um, research for this episode, which where Susan and me thought we might begin. It was from um, a blog called um, The Haunted Generation, and the, the critic, is, his name is Bob Fisher, um, and he wrote an article called Musty Books, Marianne Dreams by Catherine Storr, um, and he wrote that in 2020. Um, we'll leave a link to it in the, in the show notes, and it's, uh, the quote is, Catherine Storr's achievement is in writing a story that leaves all interpretations open and valid, veering back and forth between the, uh, the, the ennui of the humdrum everyday and the surreal, logic-twisting intensity of the nightmare with dizzying aplomb that almost leaves us questioning our sense of reality. So I really think that's a great place to begin. Um, I think most of this episode is going to be me asking questions to which there are no answers, because that's that's how the book makes me feel. Um, but what, what do you reckon, Susan? Is that a good place to begin? Yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful place to begin, because the thing that strikes me on this reread was that this is such a book about the power of dreams about the power of imagination the power of fantasy and one of the things I really liked about it was the relationship between the dream worlds and the real worlds and the tension between those spaces and how almost more real the dream worlds is and actually I know you said that the horror for you the horror really begins at, like around chapter 11 but mm -hmm. for me and I and I remember this as a child as well for me the horror begins the first time she goes into the dream and she sees the dream house because the house is like in the dream it's like a physical manifestation of a child's drawing and that to me was terrifying right as opposed to looking like a real house is that what you mean it looked yeah because like it was like yeah yeah, yeah. Flat. it was like a house that looked like a drawing the the walls weren't straight there was nothing in the house the house is well she doesn't know this initially but the house is empty or even mm -hmm. the fact that she gets there and the landscape as well the landscape is all of this grass that's swishing like dry and, and swishing yeah. the noise of that swishing the sort of hissing of the grass seems, it yeah. just seems like a really uncanny landscape like it's a house that's not quite a house it's a pastoral landscape that's not a pastoral landscape that's a very dry and parched landscape and maybe this is like made more evocative because I'm living in a landscape right now that is really dry and parched um, <laughs> yes true and so the visceral uncanniness of the dream worlds 
and the relationship that that has to her illness was really striking for me. Um, and I think one of the things that Catherine Storer does brilliantly is she describes the awfulness and the kind of discomfort and boredom and frustration that you get with being ill, where you're not like, you're not passed out comatose, but you can't get out of bed either. And you're just sitting there feeling awful. Um, and the sickness makes Marianne feel, and this is a word that Catherine Storr uses in the book, the, the sickness, her illness makes her feel unreal. So the sickness is already pushing her into a dreamlike un state of unreality in the real world. Yeah. And I love, I think I, I when we were rereading re this book, I texted you saying, I love that, like on page one, I was like, I love that Marianne <laughs> is a fantasist a from fantasist. the very beginning. Absolutely. Yeah, she's thinking about her writing lessons and she's imagining all of the, the ways that her writing lessons might go, that she'll get on the horse and the riding instructor will say, oh my God, I can't believe you've never ridden a horse before. And that was something I I identified with so hard. That yes. was me as a child. I mean, that's still, that's still me. I'm like most of the time living in this like fantasy world where I'm imagining all of the the wonderful things that are going to happen to me and then reality doesn't quite match up with it but that was done so brilliantly yes I think you can really tell that she had she was a parent and that she also had such a deep understanding of of how children's minds work and she, I think she worked with children in her professional life as well besides being an author um, yeah, absolutely. I, I love the way Marianne is depicted right from the start that she is, as you say, a fantasist or a child who lives in her imagination. And I wondered if she, perhaps if she's an, an only child, we don't, oh no, she, no, she doesn't. Oh, she has she's a got a brother. Thomas, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But she's, she, we never see him. We never see the men in her family, don't we? We only no, kind of get, no. they're off page, both her dad and her brother. We never see them. It's only Marianne and her mother that we meet. Um, so. And actually, that's quite interesting that now that you say that, that, that we only see women. Because the pencil as well, the pencil is from her great grandmother's workbox. And when I when I read that, I was like, oh, this is so interesting. It's like a tool that's like coming down. It's passed down through female generations or it's it's something that's part of the matrilineal. Uh, yeah, female line. lineage. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there, yeah, there's something here about and it's again, then it's interesting that she draws a boy, uh, puts a boy into this dream space. Like on one level, because he's easier to draw, but on another level, because I guess we'll talk more about Jungian theory, but maybe this is a good point to bring up um, that Jung had this idea that all of us are made up of like female and male energy. So we all have a, a female part of our psyche and a male part of our psyche yeah. um, called the male is the animus and the female is the anima. the anima yeah and mark like we never know as you said whether mark is is the actual mark from real life in the dream or whether she's projected um this kind of character onto this name whether mark in the dream is a complete fiction um, and then if you're reading it from a Jungian perspective mark might be her anima he might be the the male part of her psyche and there's some kind of negotiation or argument that's happening between the various different elements of her psyche that are being worked out in in the dream world 
Yeah, I think that's really it, that when I when I read when I read this as an adult, or rather for this podcast, because I've read it as an adult before, and none of that occurred to me. But when I read it with that in mind, you know, or the idea that Catherine Storer had such a psychological background herself, and I, I kind of I at this for this podcast episode when I when I reread this book, it was with a different, it was was it was with a different um, uh, I suppose understanding of of the story. I really really did delve deeply into what Mark means, what he symbolizes and, and who he is. Um, and there's plenty to be said about Mark, uh, I think. So we'll definitely get onto that. Um, and um, yeah, as you say, he, we, we don't have any external confirmation of his identity. We don't have any proof that he is the Mark that exists in the outside world. We only have um, Marianne's sort of impression of him. Yes, so although we're never sure of whether the mark and the dreams is a fiction of Marianne's imagination or he's a dream version of the actual mark, there does seem to be some tangible relationship between the dream world and reality because the things that happen in the dream world seem to have an effect on the people in the real world. When Marianne scribbled over the house um it seems to affect mark physically in the real world and when they're working together and when mark is exercising on the bike in the dream world the mark in the real world is also getting better so there that's either a coincidence or there is some feedback from the dream world into the real worlds and actually i just i wanted to talk a little bit like while we're on the subject of young and because Catherine Storer had trained in Jungian theory. I just wanted to talk a little bit about what dreams were for Jung. His dreams were like, there was such a huge part of Jung's theory. And for Jung, dreams were like, they were the, they were the psyche's way of communicating with the self, of telling the conscious mind things that it wasn't aware of yet. And that and dreams worked through symbols. And I think we're going to come back um, later in the episode to work through all of the different symbols um, in, in the dream. And it seems in the novel that Maria, that the dream, Marianne's dreams are a way of her working through a variety of different things. So her dreams are a way of negotiating, like negotiating her illness, her feelings, her temper, her relationship to other people. And also, I think it's interesting that she's doing that through drawing as well so it's mm -hmm. dreams and it's art art is also a means for her to engage with a non-conscious part of herself and think through and work through difficult things sure and for young the house itself and he talked about a dream that he had of um going into this house and work um that one level was really elaborate and kind of full of rococo decorations and as he moved down in the dream down the different downstairs and down into the basement he realized that the house was a representation of his self of his psyche and that the upper levels were the more conscious levels and as he he was moving downwards in the house he was going downwards into 
more subconscious realms and more ancient parts of the self. And I do think it's interesting that in this dream that, well, Marianne, first of all, is outside the house. She can't get in. And the house, if mm. the house is a symbol of self, then the house is Marianne. And it's like that uncanniness, which I think I've picked up as, as a child and again, as an adult reading, that the uncanniness of the house is representing some kind of imbalance or uncanniness of the self for Marianne as well. It's empty yeah. and it's flat. And she's, as she's, kind of working through all of her different feelings and working through her illness she's filling it with with things, things and yeah. again and again for young everything in your dream everything and everyone is an aspect of yourself right so the house is herself mark is an aspect of herself all of the things that she puts in the house are aspects of herself and the stones are an aspect of herself and again we can come back to all of those things but I think you want to say more about Mark or you have more yeah we're just answered questions about Mark <laughs> one of the things that I wondered about Mark um is that um as you say I completely get I'm completely on board with the whole idea that Mark uh like when I was a kid reading this book I I, I assumed I guess on like the surface reading of or, or not surface reading but like you know an initial reading of it might suggest that the mark in Marianne's dream is is Mark is Mark Mark from the world and that for for whatever I I when I was a kid reading this I thought for so, somehow that our dreams were connected and that Mark was dreaming the same dream as her or that there were somehow yeah. you know um uh and that he, but I always assumed that the, that the Mark we meet in the book is an actual separate human being of his own on his own but it's only as an adult now reading it back that I kind of realized that's probably not really what it is and I wondered. One but I think could, it I think it can be both. It could be both. I mean, of course, as as the as the quote begins, as we, the quote we began with says, all interpretations of this book are are open and valid. And that's the way Catherine Storr has written it, that any any way we choose to interpret this book is completely valid. It, they, they all have things you can say in their defense, you know, or that you could argue for any yeah. point of view. And I, I think that's like actually it's such an achievement from a stylistic and from a from a an author mm. point of view to be able to do that, to write a story that works so well. That's that's and yet it's so open to anyone's interpretation and, and they all they all mean, you know, they, they all have meaning on the story. Um, but something that struck me just as I was reading for the podcast was that um, as well as Mark being, you know, possibly being read as, as, as an aspect of Marianne herself, which I think is, is really interesting. I wondered whether also Mark is a type of, of like a, a fantasy projection that Marianne is making of, of a child that is sicker than she is, because as she learns more about Mark, yeah, uh, she she learns that he has a more severe. Like we don't, we never actually know what Marianne has, but I'm sure because Catherine Storr discusses Mark's disease as being polio, and she's very clear that that's what Mark has, and she's very clear mm -hmm. he's very unwell at points in the book. He goes into an iron lung at one point because you know he can't yeah. breathe any other way. He's he's weakened and he's he's paralyzed um from from his illness, and it's it's very severe. But Marianne is, is also very unwell. But her, if Catherine Storr was willing to be so open about Mark's disease being polio, then if 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 Marianne had polio too, you'd expect that she would she would just say that. So we don't actually know what Marianne has. Um, and as disabling as it is, it doesn't seem to be as bad as what Mark has got. And I I read the book the other day, and I wondered whether Mark was Marianne's um idea of a child who was sicker than her, um, and if I can save him, then I will help myself to get better. Um, and like just to consider that these these readings are all possible um, mm. that there's su there's such depth in a, in a book that's written for kids that can be read on on one level to mean one thing it can be read on several different levels to mean several different things it's just you know I'm staggered really that this as we as we've in the previous episodes we've done such simple seeming books that aren't that long <laughs> you know they they contain so many multitudes I think the the way that 
people wrote, uh, you know, uh, children's fantasy literature of the classic period, you know, with the 50s, 60s, 70s, is just a different beast to, to, to what, what it is today. It's, it's, it's incredibly psychologically complex. Um, and I don't, I don't really know, I don't really want to um, psychoanalyze anybody, particularly people who have passed on, but I wonder, is it the generation that they all grew up in, whether it was because they went through war, yeah. you know, or, or what it was, they, they just had such depth of psychology and understanding of, of people, how people think and how children think and how minds work. It's just, and the, this book in particular really just has, has incredible, incredible depth to it. But certainly there's, there's a scene um, in my, um, episode in my sorry my episode in my uh, edition mm-hmm. it's on page 39 I know your edition differs to mine Susan but um it's when Marion and Mark um kind of f- start talking to each other in in the dream and uh, Mark tells Marianne his name and he says you know my name is Mark and the dream ends before Marianne can tell him her name she it's kind of like she gets this fear this kind of fear overtakes her and she kind of gets pulled out of the dream and when I read that the other day I thought my goodness it's like something is frightened at the leap of logic that Marianne has made or rather Marianne kind of works out that this is Mark Marianne works out that this is the Mark that um uh that Miss Chesterfield has been telling her about this boy tells her his name is Mark and she goes oh so you're you're the Mark you're the Mark that Miss Chesterfield is also teaching and he's like uh okay but it's like it's like it's like a fear pulls Marianne out of the dream and it's like almost she's almost afraid herself at the leap of logic that she has taken in, in working out who Mark is and maybe it's the magic in the house maybe it's the dream uh maybe it's Marianne herself but something just yanks her out before she can get too deeply <laughs> invested in this conversation with Mark and I just thought that was so interesting to think about um yeah uh, like it's like she can't like again if i because i'm like now deep in the <laughs> in the kind of we are it's, it's like this house has no basement though which is interesting Ooh. um Good point, actually. But it's got that it's got that dark room upstairs that has the radio. Yeah, yeah. Um, don't, don't talk about that. It, I'm, not, I'm not ready for that, for that yet. It's too, <laughs> too traumatic. <laughs> um, but oh it's God. like, yeah, she's yanked out of the dream. Usually when there is, yeah, when she's about to confront something in herself, like when she's, in, yeah, it is really interesting that she, she can't, she, she's, can't tell him her name in the dream and that like because I think there is like I just found it in, in my edition but there's a, but she does eventually, a great description <laughs> yeah. said she made a tremendous effort stretching her mouth and cracking her lungs in an effort to make herself heard and woke yeah so the the dream pushes her out in very very brilliant descriptions of how you get kind of pushed out of dreams yeah in actuality and even though this book I think there's definitely something in what you're saying about all of these writers that you know grew up during the war and I think Alan Garner Diana Wynne-Jones and Susan Cooper were all born in the same year yeah um, so. or around the same time yeah and they're all Catherine geniuses Storrs, older yeah Catherine, yeah, yeah. She, were, older. she was born in 1913 yeah but there yeah. even though this book is written in 1958 and there are elements in this book that Datus. At the same time, it is a book that still works, that still resonates, that still there's so much of this book that doesn't feel dated at all, and mm. that's all the psychological, absolutely dream fantasy, yeah, just like or what it is to be a person with illness, or what it is to be a person with feelings, like what it is to be a child with feelings is is she really gets that so well. There's so us. there's so much about Marianne and her reactions and her her rage that just is so even as a kid it was so relatable like the time when she gets angry and she scribbles 
marks or yeah. scribbles the window out or when she you know what what else was it um yeah yeah that, that bit when she when she just gets the crayon or the pencil and just kind of you know just scribbles really hard over the window I completely as a kid and as an adult I completely relate to that and I go I totally get why you're so angry and we have to also it's very important to remember the situation that Marianne is in I mean you know that she is a child confined to bed for months on end that she's not well you know and 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 it must be so like beyond what we can imagine irritating to be sort of hovered over by all these you know concerned sort of adults you know um and I think the symbolism of the stones has has something to do with that too I, I think mm. there's a connection between the symbolism of the stones and this you know sense of being hovered over by these watchful eyes you know oh, all the yeah, adults in your life <laughs> you know that, are... that that didn't occur to me that's yeah. a really that's a really interesting interpretation of the stone I had a I have a different interpretation oh, of the cool. stones but that's brilliant that's brilliant I can't wait to hear what that is but um <laughs> you know so but I mean it, it, like even just the child child to childhood rage is 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 a, is a total it's because that's as, as I'm a parent of a child who's almost seven and uh to watch the rage that that my child goes through at like you know <laughs> probably what I would consider to be the slightest provocation um you know it, it really just gives me a different uh layer of understanding when I read this book now and I kind of I remember how it felt to be that age I remember how it felt to be 10 and to be when the world was just against you and you just had to destroy something you know and yeah I I, I get it I'm, I'm totally on Marianne's side um, and uh, there's, a, there's a scene. Sorry, go on. You have in your notes here that I'm looking at. Um, yeah. You said the um, the so relatable, the feeling of being nasty, knowing it, and not being That's, able to help yourself yeah. or stuff. And like. That's what I was going to say yeah. next, actually. Oh, yeah, sorry, yeah. sorry. No, you're fine. Yeah, you're fine. I, yeah, go on. It's it's really relatable, is, isn't it? It's relatable as a child, but also it's relatable as an adult. Like I'm reading Marianne's like descriptions of or like the descriptions of Marianne losing her temper or getting really irritable I'm like I and 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 knowing that you're being awful but not being able to stop yourself, stop yourself. Like, and yeah I'm reading it going I, that still happens to me <laughs> <laughs> you know uh it's it's like I don't know it's like picking a scab even though you know you shouldn't do it and yet you can't yeah. stop you know <laughs> sorry to be so gross um this book is all about body horror too in, in some ways yeah, yeah. um but uh, yeah it's just she really, really just gets under the skin of what it feels like to be a hot, annoyed, sick, irritated, you know, hovered over a child. And I, I just I love it for that, you know, and, and I love then that we get such an insight into Marianne's inner inner world, you know, when we go into the dream. Um, and I love that idea you were talking about that houses or, or whatever in dreams are are the self, because I not to get too personal, but I have this recurring dream. I haven't had it for a long time, but um. Of, You're going to reveal in, a lot about house. yourself now, well, <laughs> it's, it's, I, I used to wonder, was it like it was it like a hotel or something? Because it was it was a big house, all made of like made of glass all around, and there was like um in the center there was like a a load of greenery, like a tree or like like sort of like jungle leaves, almost like, kind of growing up through the center of the house with like a, a kind of like like a pool at the bottom. And I used to just often often in dreams, I just kind of find myself kind of wandering through this these glass corridors, looking out over the landscape around. And it differs. Sometimes the landscape is, is a city. Sometimes it's not, you know. But and then coming to the coming to the the green bit and just kind of sitting looking at the at the greenery and just getting such comfort. And I kind of if if that is if what you're saying is true, and if, if you says it's it's me, <laughs> I don't know what I am then. You know, I am. Oh, that's amazing. I am. That's amazing. <laughs> you are you are a beautiful glass building with this like lush forest within that gives you comfort that is a gorgeous representation of your yeah. psyche I mean I never it never occurred to me that that was me like I just thought it was a, a place that I like to go to in a dream I must look up more about Jung I did I did study him years ago but um, my knowledge is quite patchy still now at the moment but I do love the idea of symbolism I think there's so much depth 
to the symbolism in this dream. And I definitely think that you're on the money there with saying that the house is um, is representing Marianne herself and that she fills it with things as, as she goes. Um, although, isn't it funny that there are things that are in service of other people? Like it's 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 stuff that's yeah, in service yeah. of Mark. Although, again, Mark. I, I, if we're going to talk about Mark being an aspect of her, then I guess it's, it is in her own service as well. But she, she sees it as giving Mark the things that he needs, you know, so it's but like I she's suppose, it's like she's serving the animus part of herself uh, and neglecting the anima maybe I don't know yeah are we getting too deep here Matt? very no 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 there's no such thing as Sinead and <laughs> too deep um, <laughs> but yeah then then it becomes a very kind of 1950s yeah it is a bit 1950s female, and it's like, attitudes, isn't it yeah that and like then part of what the story is about is about Marianne learning to become more self-sacrificing and service the needs of the patriarchy yeah um, my feminism got triggered repeatedly during the reading of this book I have to say yeah and Mark is like <laughs> as much as like the, as you said they're both the both the kids are like they're quite irritable and um selfish and I identify with Marianne a lot and I have lots of sympathy for Marianne but Mark I find Mark very Not so much because he's very misogynistic at times. Yeah, is our, is, is yeah. our Mark, isn't he? But then I, as I read it again, then you know, because I, I did read it twice for this podcast, um, I wondered whether it was Marianne internalizing the misogyny of her time because Mark's mm. Mark is so critical of her, you know, and yet, but she's very critical of herself in the waking world. And something that struck yeah. me, and I found it really painful actually, because uh, again, how relatable it was, but also just how painful it is she's so critical of her own art like she's you know when she draws nothing she draws is good enough and she's always mm. pulling it apart and saying it could have been this or it could have been that or I thought this pencil would work and make my drawings perfect and it's so sad because you're kind of going but you've drawn a beautiful picture you know and it's like when I'm dealing with my own my own kid like sometimes when when, when we're doing art at home here nothing is ever good enough and the pictures get torn up and I'm like don't do that oh. you know because they're beautiful pictures and I really felt that on a on a soul level, you know, poor Marianne. I mean, you know, we do it to ourselves though we as well. I was the same as a kid, and I'm the same still. Or now, like we do it to ourselves. Matter myself, now. yeah, yeah, or about yeah. anything we create, you know. Um, and I just said, isn't it? Isn't it funny that it's like it's like Mark is almost an externalization uh, of the of the criticism yeah. that Marianne feels towards herself, and it's even more vicious because she's able to make it more vicious because it's coming from somebody else. And coming from a boy, um, you know, which mm, mm. no, with no disrespect to our male re- uh, listeners, so I know we have many, and thank you for tuning in. Um, you know, at the time, I'm sure this is probably the way boys were raised to speak to girls or to think about girls. Oh, you're you're only a girl; you can't possibly do that. Or you're you're you know, no one if, if that you drew that just like a girl, or no one that was so badly done, you know. And even at the end, when she's trying to draw a helicopter to bring them away, and oh, she can't, no. she can't draw one, you know. And Mark is like, "Do you need a pencil, and I'll do it," you know. And she has to find a way to give Mark the pencil so that he can draw the helicopter because she couldn't possibly draw the helicopter. It's just, you know, it's um, I just find it. I, I just find that deeply painful, really, as an adult, as a parent, yeah. I think, as well, reading it, looking at a little girl tearing herself to pieces, basically, you know, and and even in, if if we're if the reading we're doing is is, is kind of has has validation, you know, creating a whole nother. I suppose, not character or, or, or a person to do it for her as well, you know, um, so. There's, there's but she also argues back with him like she, she okay so yeah. I really love this idea of Mark being this kind of internalized misogyny or this like internalized representation of the patriarchy that yeah. she but she fights both <laughs> helping, yeah. but she fights, she fights um, yeah. and she argues back and she stands up for herself and which maybe she can't um, do but then it's also mm. yeah and then it's also really interesting that they have to like they have to escape the 
space that the claustrophobic space of the house where Mark is contained. So they have to she has to they both have to escape the space of internalized misogyny and escape or the stones whatever, whatever else it might for, all, for all yeah. of the variety of things that they represent yeah, yeah. to go to the lighthouse and the sea yeah do we want to talk about the stones now or have you or do you want more well, to talk I'm, more about I'm, Mark? I'm ready no let's, let's you're ready it. for the stones I, I have to read, <laughs> steal myself gird my loins now for the stones because these are yes they're scary uh, Marianne puts the eyes on them uh after a fit of anger with Mark isn't it that uh what was it that she had bought flowers or she got her mum to buy flowers for Miss Chesterfield's birthday and yeah. then Miss Chesterfield arrives into the house with this massive beautiful bunch of roses that Mark has given her for her birthday and Marianne is so upset that her own flowers now look puny by comparison she get, just gets so angry um, and she scribbles over the window and she puts eyes on the stones and the stones with the eyes are just literally they keep me awake at night when I was a kid thinking about these stones looking at me with the eyes and blinking and the, the wet because I suppose I was a kid like any kid maybe you're the same you know who grew up who was who was a kid in the 80s we grew up with stuff like um Jim Henson you know the puppets that in in movies yeah. like labyrinths and things and I could really easily imagine a stone with a blinking oh, oh yeah eye you know because you, you'd see you'd, you'd seen them in the movies and you're like oh my gosh it, it, it just I went to I went to a visceral core terror part of me that I still you know I still there I actually wrote down all the scary bits for this episode <laughs> podcast episode um so the eyelids the swiveling eyes the implication of moistness I mean even oh, more yeah. moist is enough I know and movement I mean it's horrible and then later in the book in page on page one two eight in my edition we have the stones being um sentient like that was yeah. indescribably awful. I know. The idea that stones can like think and that they're looking at you and that they're thinking things about you mm-hmm. too much. <laughs> stones are quite um stones are quite malevolent in Alan Garner's work as well, aren't they? Yeah, the, the stones Morgan are Glenelid or yeah. And in and in um the weird stone and yeah, the yeah. moon of Gomroth, the Morgan is connected with stones. Yeah. And stones are they're they're kind of part of her minions. Yeah. Isn't it gas? I, like, and, and, and but another another question I wanted to ask myself about this book as well is, what are the kids afraid the stones are going to do? Like, what what are they like? They get really really freaked out as I would as well at the idea that stones are kind of coming closer to the house and that they're really you know they're the pressure that they're exerting on them is is growing, but like what are they afraid? They have no limbs. They have no weapons. They what are they going to do to them? You have an answer. I see your finger. In there. Yes, <laughs> yes, Susan. No, not an, not an answer. But <laughs> what I think. What I think of the stones, again, it's like related to Jungian symbolism. And I'm going to quote from this brilliant book, Tashin's Book of Symbols, Reflections and Archetypal Images. So when I read this book again, I went to my, this is like my my Bible, this book. Um, I went to have a look at all the, the, the description. The, the, I went to have a look at the symbolism of all of the objects in the dreams. And so I had a look at stones and I'd already, I, I'd already been thinking of the stones as like standing stones as something ancient. And if everything in a dream is part of you, then for me, the stones started to represent some ancient part of ourselves, some ancient part of Marianne that might be related to those uncontrollable feelings, those like her temper, her rage. It's like, it's, feelings we're not proud of it's it's yes. it's a very that's what i think is important. 
part of our. I was going to say the word Sonic. You got me. You got there before uh-huh. me, though. I was going to hop uh-huh. in with like, you mean Sonic, Susan? And then you just hop in. <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> our minds have synced. We're so sinking, man. Absolutely. We're going to start dreaming the same. I'm going to start. Actually, do you know what? I had a dream about you last night. Oh, holy God. I had a dream that you were showing me around this amazing landscape and you were showing me like these, this, this beautiful river and you were talking about the, the water in, in the river as being this really clear, um, pure water that nobody else knew about, but you were showing it to me. So thank you. Thank you for that, Sinead. Oh, isn't that lovely? I, I wish yeah. there was a, a deeper meaning for that. I, maybe you needed the loo in your sleep or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Quite possibly. <laughs> but anyway, to answer your question about what, what the stones might do. So what the Book of Symbols says is that stones as symbols are their stones are inert stones lack sensation or feeling mm. and that stones and i'm quoting from the book here is, no, in um, this book they stones, don't go on no no no, no. <laughs> but stones are a regression to a less conscious state right so perhaps what they're and then also another quote is that our worst fear freezes us to stone robbing yes. us of our ability to act so maybe there's something here about if the stones catch up with them they're they're going to turn the kids into stone make the kids regress to a less conscious state maybe it's they're representative of the illness that they'll have yeah. a relapse or the illness will take over them stones are also like death as well so yeah i mean and both kids are they're very ill mark yeah, more mark so particularly but, yeah yeah if but the it, stones catch up with them it might mean death there was something you said there about um representing something that they're ashamed of or are afraid to sort of mm. face I think there's something in that because you know when, when the light from Marianne's lighthouse falls on them yeah. you know and they go no not the light and they close their eyes you know that to me was so indicative of stones you know being something that they can't bear to be in the light they don't want to be they don't want to be sort of yeah, acknowledged yeah, yeah, yeah. they don't want to be seen they don't want to be you know um like so you know bringing something to light is is dealing with it basically isn't it or, mm. or, or sort of acknowledging that it's there or whatever so if the stones don't want to be in the light it's like they're representing something that's deeply buried and that Marion doesn't want to look at or doesn't want to think about or deal with um yeah but absolutely. you know just just, just on, the, on the level of them being story or, or sorry, not stories uh, stones um you know even the fact that they that, that they're sentient stones that have eyes that open and close and and then as as we learn when Marianne draws the radio and radio somehow picks up on the stones thoughts you know they also have thoughts and they're thinking about the kids know, the, so the, the, the bit that really really just absolutely made me want to just put the book in the freezer when I was a kid and, and still to us <laughs> is page 153 in my edition when Marianne touches a watcher in the dark one of the stones mm. you know she touch when they were trying to escape and she kind of hurt she stumbles and puts her hand on one in the dark by mistake and it's like living stone, the cold flesh, which is alive. And somehow I said it is truly unbearable. Like the because you can just it's so easy to imagine. It's it's something I can absolutely if I put my hand on the desk beside me, I can imagine it's cold living stone. And it's just it's horrific. Mm. <laughs> I'm not able. Um, and it was also the the radio itself in, in the dark room. The, when the scene when Marianne goes into the dark room to turn the radio off because, you know, the, they can't cope with the, the sound of it anymore. As a child, this just I had to close the book and just wait for a while and let myself deal with the fear before I could continue. Um, and I still feel I still feel that fear that I felt as a kid when I read the scene of her going into the dark room by herself to try and find this radio and turn it off because it's pumping out this you know, this, this static noise and the and yeah. the boom boom and the and the the creepy thoughts of the stones. Um, I and I remembered something when I read this book. I hated the sound of static when I was a kid. I just couldn't. It just made me my teeth go on edge and. 
almost like it was something that anything anything could happen in static you know it could be disturbed at any time mm. with with any other noise and I was I was kind of like almost listening to it to try and find listen for the sounds that were underneath it or something like that it was like a like something I was terrified of but yet compelled me as well so I, I usually I, I, you know what? that's there in Elador as well you know the static there's, there's, yeah yeah the, the, the yeah. hissing of static yeah yeah and I'm wondering and I'm I'm thinking this because I'm thinking about the symbolism of the bedroom that Marianne is in and the bedroom as this kind of and the bedroom and the illness as being this kind of womb-like space this space of like existing almost out of time in a space where she's having to regress and heal so but also I'm wondering about like the sound you might hear as a baby in the womb would that be kind of oh, yeah. staticky or is and that the, is and it, the boom of your mother's heartbeat maybe yeah. Yeah. yeah is that is is that sound or going into that dark room and that hearing that static is that connecting us to something very very pre-conscious which is very unsettling well i never thought about the womb connection that's really cool and that, that could easily be I mean, here again, we have all these interpretations of stones. They're all completely valid and we have made such good. Yeah. They all make sense, you know, and it's funny how they can all they can all make sense and yet not agree with each other. But they all they, they all stand as 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 perfectly valid readings of, of the symbols in the book. It's just it's it's just really, really interesting. Um, and again, that's how dreams work is that yeah, you can't really yeah. you can't pin down. You can't pin down meanings to dream. You can't really pin down like, you know, when you try and you can feel the dream. Dreams are quite bodily. Yeah, but when you try and describe it, it just falls apart. It's it's it's, it's like you can't like an idea for a book, the dream. you know. Yeah, <laughs> having having an idea for a book and then trying to tell your agent what it is, you know, it's really real to you, but you talk talk about it and it all falls apart. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and even like Marianne, like she's got this idea of what her that what, what her drawings are going to be like, and then she draws and then them she and draws them up. and it doesn't live up. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So it's but, a book um, about, like, as I'm just thinking of this right now. It's a book, as well as a book of being about dreams and about, like, psychological states. It's also a book about creating art. Creativity, absolutely. Yeah. As, as you were speaking, it occurred to me, too. Because, I mean, of course, um, Catherine Storer knew, knew these things intimately from the inside. She was both yeah. a Jungian um, analyst and scholar and also a, a creative. So she, she, yeah, I absolutely think there's something in that. This, this sense that your, your, your internal idea of what you're creating is one thing and then you the reality of it is something different, which is something I think, sadly, anybody who <laughs> has created anything can sort of uh, relate to. Um, but there was, there was a quote from Catherine Storr herself that I, I wanted to sort of say in relation to the stones as well. Um, there was a great article that you pointed me towards. Uh, Catherine gave a paper called Fear and Evil in Children's Books in 1969. And it was published in 1970. Um, and it was in, in response to a question from um, from a person called Brian Alderson and in part of her answer he basically said basically are the stones still there or did Marianne resolve the the, the stones and Catherine Storr gave this really chillingly brilliant answer she said of, of course the stones are still there evil is still there all around us mm. and that was like <laughs> you know chill down the spine <laughs> moment for me it was like oh my goodness yeah so maybe they're maybe they're Marianne got away from them the stones are still watching us <laughs> the stones are still inside us yes somewhere you know yeah. and she and she seemed to think that there were evil and she and actually she apparently as an author who didn't shy away from writing about frightening things or you know um she saw it as one of her duties i think to frighten mm. children in a way that they could i suppose <laughs> control you know like and, and help them to deal with with fear apparently that was something that was unusual for the time that she was writing it has since become far more commonplace 
um, but she was a bit of a bit of a groundbreaker in that. In that, I think that was in the article I quoted at the beginning. Um, no, not sorry, it wasn't. It was in an, another article by a person called Kimberly Reynolds. Kimberly Reynolds. Um, and it's I'll put a link to that as well. It's a really good article, which that's what Kimberly Reynolds believes that uh, Catherine Store was kind of a, a a pioneer in the business of frightening, frightening children. children. <laughs> she certainly frightened me and uh, made me think deeply. So her 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 objective was was reached with with me when I read this book for the first time. And what, now that I still read it again, um, yeah, she frightened me so much that I blocked out most of this book as a child I think that would probably be considered a success I think Catherine Storr would consider her job done yeah <laughs> and me too in a way because I, I didn't block out the, the fear but I blocked out the name of the book and the author so maybe my brain was trying to say this is my protection against ever reading this book again <laughs> but, but the internet managed to overcome that and I, and I reconnected with the book and I'm glad I did because it is one that means a lot to me we need to talk about the ending yes I think we should because I can't quite get my head around what is happening at the ending of the novel so first of all Marianne and Mark escape the house and as you said a really climactic tense sequence where they get on their bicycles and use the light from the lighthouse to which the, the stones have to close their eyes when that light beam shines and they get out of the house and then they cycle up this hill towards the lighthouse. And I looked up bicycles in my my book of symbols. Your symbolism um, Bible. Yeah. yeah, my symbolism Bible. And the my symbolism Bible said about bicycles that in the landscape of dreams, and this is a quote from the book, bicycles are a vehicle of psychic energy and progression that is personal rather than collective under the command of the individual ego. So there's in something English, interesting there. Is... <laughs> <laughs> um, that bicycles represent kind of taking control of your own energy right. um, and moving forward on a personal energy, level. Like on a personal yeah. level. So they, they each have, um, have their own bicycle, basically. And that's what happens yeah, in the end. They have yeah. their own bicycle. Yeah. Um, and the bicycles represent independence and freedom, and like it's your own mode of transport that you are generating the energy yourself yeah so I think it's significant that they escape on bicycles something that struck me too and it's, it's kind of getting away from bicycles slightly but it's about the stones you know the way yeah um Marianne has the power to do anything essentially in the stream mm. world with her pencil right and it struck me as I was reading the book this time why doesn't she use the pencil pardon me use the pencil to do something to to defeat the stones as in why doesn't she draw blindfolds on the stones why doesn't she put a box around stones why doesn't she draw a wall around the house all these things were possible she could have done any of those things but it, she didn't and it's like it's like some part of her recognized that whatever the stones represent to her she has to face it she has to deal with yes. it she has to escape from it you know without using I suppose trickery or chicanery or sleight of hand or sleight of nib to to get out of it um I thought that was really uh, interesting as well so the the escape is and the end of the book the escape and the end is 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 obviously really important even though as you say it's really ambiguous as well um yeah but yeah I think that's a really good point that they she doesn't blindfold the stones or she doesn't capture the stones she has to face the stones and she has got to escape she's got to use her psychic energy to propel herself 
beyond the stones. Past them and through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. And that she's got to kind of take control of her feelings and channel that energy into getting away from the claustrophobic space of the house and of whatever the stones represent as well. Yeah. Um, and then the I, I always thought it was it struck me as, as funny too or not or, or interesting that the light from the lighthouse you know they they hear this kind of a gentle voice in it you know exhorting them to mm. to run now or go you know and save yourselves type thing and at one point in the book um, Marianne says that the, the voice is impl- is implicitly trustworthy and I'm like how how do you know it's implicitly trustworthy you know I wondered is is that a way of also saying that Marianne is actually the author of all that happens in this world so that's why she knows it's implicitly trustworthy because it's some part of her is telling her mm. to, to to break out and, and 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 save herself you know I just thought it was funny that there's no it isn't questioned ever by the by the narrator or by the book that um Marianne trusts this voice implicitly but why does she do that um you know and I think that's that's an acknowledgement maybe that it, it is because it's like everything in this in the dream world it's it's part of Marianne you know, that's, that's why she actually knows. bring yeah that's reminded me of um actually so, uh, a piece of the novel that I wanted to read out which is in oh, my yeah. puffin edition is on page 120 so it's a conversation that marianne it's a conversation that marianne is having with herself in reality um so i'm going to read this out part of her mind now told her that she ought to be satisfied about mark who was after all doing quite well and was safe in hospital but another part, a niggling, tiresome part that wouldn't quite keep quiet, told her that Mark was alone in a house watched all round by them and that she had left him there and had never even tried to help. He's perfectly all right, most of Marianne said to the rest of Marianne. There's nothing for you to bother yourself about. All that business about the house and them is just a dream. But he was there in my dream, the small, persistent part of Marianne said, and I said I'd help him and I didn't. I left him there more than a week ago with all those eyes looking at the house. It doesn't matter what you do in dreams, the sensible, comforting voice said. They don't count for real life. They are real themselves, said the other voice, and Marianne knew it was true. How you behave in a dream is just as real as how you behave when you are awake. Oh dear, said the whole of Marianne miserably. I shall have to go back into the house. I don't want to. I don't want to. It's so interesting that in reality, she's already split into various different parts that are like like we all are that are yeah. talking to each other and arguing with each other um and i love that that voice that says dreams are real themselves how yes. you behave in a dream is just as real as how you behave when you're awake and she she knows that that's true and then somehow all of marianne comes together with that realization that the dream world is just as real as the waking world that they're all parts of the whole that that Marianne encompasses both Marianne in the real world and Marianne in the dream world and the, the fantasy world. world. That's brilliant. Uh, it's a really good insight into. I, I mean, I, I remember having similar conversations with myself as a kid. You know, mm-hmm. you know, when you, you really feel as though you are divided up into two or more <laughs> sort of consciousnesses, you know, or whatever. Uh, uh, I remember being about, I don't know, eight or nine and being struck by this idea that I am a person, you know, I am, I am me, and <laughs> I, I am unique in the universe. And it was all like the whole, the, in, the immensity of creation just sort of, you know, rained down upon my head. And it was a lot to take when you're like nine. Um, so I think uh, I was a lot like Marianne in this book. I think that's why she's so relatable to me. And I'm sure similarly, you're the same. But I think a lot of, a lot of what yeah, is described a similar moment. is so, uh, so important. Yeah. Or so relatable, I mean. Yeah, I had a similar moment where I, I remember 
And I really remember this clearly. I was in the car. We were driving. We were just driving into Cork and I was looking at all of the people on the street and I just had this realisation that all of those people had inner lives the same way that I had an inner life. And that blew my mind. I was like, oh, my God, oh my I God. can't actually cope, can't cope with the immensity with of the fact yeah. that yeah. everyone's head is as big inside as my head is big inside. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? It's 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 the it's the beauty and the tragedy nearly of being human, isn't it? You know that we're we're all we are, we're all universes inside, and you know we we have no way of knowing. I suppose we have no way of getting into anybody else's universe or sharing that with other people. You know, other than what, by what we create. But all of our in, inner lives are so rich, and they're purely just like a like a private universe, just for you. And in a way, that's I think that's kind of sad and lonely, but um, but also very beautiful. <laughs> so. Look at where children discussions of children's books lead us. Like we're getting, I know. Here we go. Down in these deep, deep philosophical, philosophical <laughs> these philosophical holes, man. I love it. It's great. <laughs> Fundamental truths about the human condition, man. Absolutely. I mean, it's only only books like this we get to talk in that way. Um yeah. but yeah, the ending of the anyway, book. Anyway, we they, yeah, we yeah. have a focus on the ending. Like, <laughs> so one of the things that I like niggles at me is so if the house is a represent representative of Marianne's psyche mm -hmm. what does it mean that she and Mark escape it and leave it behind is she shedding some childhood part of herself because again at the beginning of the novel she's entering into she's turning to the illness happens on her 10th birthday mm -hmm. she's it's double digits she says she, it's significant because she's entering double digits where she's going to stay for a long time so that is that is a marker of a division between kind of childhood and adulthood so is the leaving of the house a kind of growing up what does it mean that they go to the tower what does it mean that we leave the book in the dream world marianne is in the tower mark's been rescued he's gone she's in the tower by herself or like in the landscape around the tower they were aiming for the sea but they never quite get there or yeah maybe mark gets there i i, I don't know how yeah. to maybe the tower with its height and its majesty and its authority is i suppose as you say like symbolic of of, of growing up or of being older maybe the light that shines from it because it has this wisdom it has this gentle encouraging voice you know maybe it's I suppose yeah maybe it's again maybe it's connected to this it's, it's a symbol of of yeah not 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 not, a, not an, an authoritarian authority but it, but a kind caring come to me I will care for you kind of authority um you know maybe it's a grown-up part, grown part of herself exactly that's what I'm trying to say so maybe as you say that the house represents Marianne's childhood she's going towards the tower of herself as a grown-up with her her wisdom and her experience and her knowledge and her care for herself and, and others um and the sea because we never they never actually quite get there um but yeah maybe that's maybe the sea is what comes after the unknowable the unknown depths yes, of the ocean yes. because they don't they don't yet know what it's like to be in to be an adult or to be an older teenager or whatever they they have to mm -hmm. yet experience that so we don't see it you know that you know mark goes off then do you get the impression mark is older than marianne or do you think they're the same age uh, sometimes that the way he speaks to her is, is he seems kind of you know it, maybe it's just just the, the viciousness of his of his misogyny or whatever but he seems older he seems like he's talking yeah. from the position of of of, of, of grown-up i don't know um, so maybe he goes before her because he's older than she is, perhaps. Maybe, and, you know, maybe. You know. 
Yeah. But um, but something I also said is, or I, I thought about, you know, at the end we have Mark is gone. Uh, he 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 takes he takes flight on the on the helicopter that comes while Marianne is is not in the dream world. Um, and Marianne kind of lies on the sun in the sunshine on the on the grass uh, beside the tower, um, waiting for waiting for him to come back to collect her. Um, which on one level you could say is kind of disappointing because she's like a damsel in distress waiting to be rescued. But in another way, she's very content and the landscape is content mm-hmm. and she describes it that way. Um, so it's like something has been resolved. And I, I wondered, is it because now that Mark is rescued, is ta- is Marianne's task complete in the dream world? You know, and is this is this sense of completion and contentment her reward in itself? You know, like um, Mark, of course, if 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 it's maybe it's her trying to come to terms with the fact that she has to grow up and and leave her childhood behind. Maybe she's letting Mark go ahead of her because as her as part of her psyche, that's more ready for it she lets him go on first and then she's preparing herself to follow him when she's ready uh you know that that mm-hmm. could be it um so i prefer uh, to read it that way than to see her as being helpless and waiting for rescue you know because she was so active and and uh, she had such agency in the escape from the house you know yeah and it's a much nicer landscape it's a much oh yeah it's a much more open fresher more regenerative landscape that she is like there's no fear there there's yeah there's a sense of kind of expansiveness in this landscape and as you were talking I was thinking yes perhaps this is she's left behind the kind of the crude uncanny house of childhood she's negotiated those complex feelings she's worked through her illness she's allowed that mark part of herself to go forward and she's taking time in this like liminal space of maybe teenagehood or this in-between space between her childhood tween, her and tween years adulthood. isn't that what they call her it her tween years yeah. yeah that she's she's enjoying this in-between time and that's where we leave her we leave her because I do think it's it's significant that we end the novel in a dream in the dream world yeah but, and, and I quite like it actually because it leaves it leaves a sense of expansiveness at the end it leaves a sense of openness it leaves a sense of possibility nothing has been closed down mm-hmm. um it's, it's not like it's... okay bye bye to childhood bye to fantasy yeah because i i hate that in books where to leave childhood is to leave imagination to leave fantasy yeah i hate so that story ends us in we're still in the imaginative worlds and that's okay and hopefully we'll still it'll, that'll remain the space that marianne can can then have it as she, as she grows you know it's the best mm-hmm. place to be it's where all the cool kids are hanging out <laughs> oh, yeah. um yeah <laughs> but yeah no I, I i like the way we've read the ending now because i mean sometimes i, I did wonder if on, on a surface on a surface reading it doesn't really it doesn't really grab me as, a, as an ending you know it's very downbeat and it's very um marianne doesn't really get the the the, the, the ending she deserves in some in some ways but as this reading has just demonstrated it might be actually exactly as we've said you know that she she has lived she's she's leaving a part of herself to wait until she's ready to to emerge into the next stage of her life and I think that's lovely and that's exactly what the last line is Marianne lay down on the short sweet smelling turf she would wait too so we're left to yeah we're left in that waiting space of possibilities and potential and all of the possibilities and potential that come from the imaginative space yeah so and she's lying down on the ground, like she's content. She's, she's safe. She's connected to the earth, <laughs> as opposed to, to earth. As opposed yeah. to being in the house where they were on bare. Was it concrete floors or wooden? Yeah, concrete, I think wasn't it really? It was yeah. 
harsh and man-made and not very comfortable mm. anyway so she's in a more natural you know connected to connected to the, the actual earth uh, where she is and it's and it seems like it's a sunny refreshing day so it seems like a much nicer yeah. place to be than, than down at the house you know and she's connected like Martha has been lifted off into the air she hasn't been lifted off into the air like she is still feeling the ground feeling the grass feeling the earth the stability of what she knows maybe mm. yeah yeah well gosh imagine getting all that from a, a, a children's, oh, children's book, book. Incredible. <laughs> <laughs> I love that this is why children's books I think are so important and, and why I, I just I think anyone who doesn't read them I think is doing themselves a disservice and uh, I hate that you know when does, maybe it hasn't happened to you yet but it might do when your when your book is, is published when you tell people you're, you write for children they go oh and are you going to write a book for grown-ups anytime are you going to write a real book <laughs> and mm. I hate that because children's books are the most real books there are um, yes you know as like, we've demonstrated already yeah. from our deep dives yes I mean they they certainly the stories that shape us come from our earliest our earliest reading experiences but you know even as adults I, I, you know I still 90% of my reading as as a, as a a very old person that I am now uh, is children's books and I know it's because it's my it's what I do and it's my my favorite thing to read because it's what I what I work in but even if I wasn't an author um I think I would read them anyway because they're just they're 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 marvelous uh they're so powerful and it, maybe it's because they speak on some sort of symbolic level maybe all children's books do have that have that ability to be read on several levels um I think this Marianne Dreams is definitely the most symbolic book that we have tried to uh, analyze so far um it's it's just it has such untold and incredible depth and it and probably means something different to everybody who reads it too yeah I know I know this is quite yeah. a spoilery episode so apologies for that but um uh you know I don't think it matters in any real sense because no. when you read when you read the book you, you, you'll bring your own meaning to to the things that that have been discussed here maybe you'll disagree completely with what Susan and I have concluded you know and that's great uh, and if you do read the book and if you have different ideas about what these symbols mean we'd love to hear about it actually so do get in touch absolutely um and I'd love to continue the discussion about this book because there is a lot I think there's a lot to be said this book is definitely got universes in it um it's it's uh it's it's for sure one of the ones that I mean it stuck with me for over 30 years uh, you know and to the mm-hmm. point where I, I had to track it down I had to, I had to be reunited with this book that shows the power that it that it has um and I think if anyone is new to it I really hope that you pick up a copy um uh, as I say bookshop links are in our show notes um if you want to pick up a copy from any of the shops that we partner with um but certainly do do pick up a copy of Catherine Soros Marianne Dreams and and give it a go and see what you think um I know she did write a sequel to this book which I haven't read Marianne and Mark no I haven't, haven't read it I either. haven't read any of her other books but it's and I think that one is it can be hard to get now I think it's out of print and and that but if um I, I must actually read some of her other books and see how and see how they compare with this one but certainly I'm glad that I met Marianne Dreams at a formative age and that it went into my psyche and scared the pudding out of me (laughs) I think Um, I think I've been in that house in my dreams I think that house has haunted my dreams even if I didn't remember if I'd blocked out the novel from my memory that that house is so familiar to me like the stones are familiar to you but it's the house that like creeps me out that concrete floor it's funny isn't it yeah uncanniness yeah and yeah, so I guess like I think I could read this in ten years' time and see something different. Something different. In it. Yeah. And there's probably elements in this book that have creeped everyone out in slightly different ways. So yeah, tell yeah. us if you've read this book, tell us what is most unsettling to you. <laughs> and if you haven't read it, 
read it and then tell us what's most unsettling to you. Um, yeah. And we shall be back uh, with a slightly different episode next time, I think. Um, but it'll be just as much fun. And uh, we shall talk to you then. So thank you again, everybody who's been in touch since uh, the first two episodes went live. Uh, we really, really appreciate all the support uh, we've been receiving. It's it's amazing. And we're so glad that you're enjoying the podcast and we hope that you continue enjoying the podcast because we are loving making it. It's been fantastic for Susan and me on loads of different levels. And uh, hopefully we'll continue talking about children's books until we run out of books to talk about, which will never happen. Um, no. so, <laughs> so until next time, I bid you adieu. And Susan. You have been listening to Story Shaped with Susan Cahill and Sinead O'Hart. Follow us on Twitter at Story Shaped Pod and don't forget to subscribe on the streaming service of your choice so that you never miss an episode. Music by Tony Betts. Mm-hmm.